Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Well, it's good to be with all of you today. Uh, I'm thankful for those of you who are joining us live. I'm thankful for those of you who are joining us online and our television audience. Uh, Our hope and our prayer is that the sermons that we preach and the services we provide create an opportunity for you to grow in your love for the Lord and in your love for one another. That is our hope. Uh, Today, this passage that we're going through, to be honest, has had a really large impact on how I view Christian growth. This passage has changed the way I think about how I relate to God on a consistent basis throughout the day. So I'm excited to teach it. There's three things I wanna do today. Number one, I want us to talk through the context of what John and the readers are dealing with as John writes 1 John chapter one to this group of folks. The gospel itself is under attack. Secondly, I wanna walk through the passage and we're gonna walk through it verse by verse. So if you have a Bible with you, you'll wanna pull that Bible out and maybe take some notes as we go and see how John defends the gospel. And the way I'd like to end our time together, and we'll spend the bulk of our time here, is working through a tangible way to help us live out this concept of walking in the light. How do we spiritually grow on a consistent basis? I want to give you something tangible I hope that you can take home with you and that you can put on a mirror, put somewhere to help you and I both think about how to grow in our relationship with the Lord. So we're going to start with the fact that the gospel is under attack. Now, as John is writing to his audience, there are people who have infiltrated the church. There are actually wolves among the sheep. And John needs to clarify what is true and what is false. So when we say the gospel, we oftentimes break the gospel up into these five movements or these 10 words. And I would suggest that from the very beginning, the gospel was under attack. From the moment when Jesus rose from the grave, people doubted and questioned his resurrection. And from that day till now, the gospel is consistently under attack. All areas are under attack. God creates is under attack. Sin breaks is under attack. Last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus saves is under attack. The Bible's clear that you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are indeed saved. From that moment until you see Jesus face to face, you are saved, and it's in that security in Jesus that we find joy. Matt preached on that last week. This passage has to do with Jesus transforms. Jesus transforms is also under attack. Jesus not only saves us, but he works in our life to change and to transform us. And these false teachers are attacking that reality, that part of the gospel. And John is going to respond with power and with clarity. So Jesus transforms is under attack. What's happening in John's day is that there are some folks who are suggesting that there is a two-tier Christianity, that some have received this secret spiritual knowledge, and by doing so, they are living at a higher level of Christian maturity and closeness to God than those who have not received it. This group would even claim, back in John's day, that they are so close to God that the way they live doesn't even matter. This secret spiritual knowledge just simply sets them apart. Well, nobody today would believe anything like that, right? I would suggest that consistently throughout the church, there's always been this push for a two-tier Christianity. Just some examples today. One, is there's a push amongst different parts of the church to say 
that when you were saved, you received the Holy Spirit, but that wasn't quite good enough. There needs to be a second experience where you receive a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, as though when you received Christ and the Holy Spirit, your tank was half full. But there's a second experience where your tank becomes completely full, and now you're really spiritual. So that creates a two-tier approach to Christianity. Moral fundamentalism. There are those who have looked at the word of God and the laws and the call of Jesus to live in certain ways. Instead of just using those as their moral boundaries, they've said, let's create additional fences and additional rules to be even more spiritual than just following the simple rules of scripture. And oftentimes people who do that believe that they are more spiritual than those who just live by the rules in scripture alone. So there's also a tendency that way to have a two-tier Christianity. So that concept is still happening today. John is going to debunk that. As we go through the passage, you're going to notice three different times he uses the phrase, if we claim. Uh, Your translation might say, if we say. But each time he says, if we claim, likely in that moment, He is showing us what the false teachers are teaching in that moment. If we claim, and then he presents the false teaching, and then he goes on to correct it and show us the right way of thinking. You'll notice that if we claim will be underlined every time we see it in the text. So the gospel is under attack. And then as we work through these next couple of verses, we see John defending the gospel and clarifying what Jesus transforms really means. So let's start in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. So God is light. Three simple words that pack a huge punch. There's so much to those three words. God is light. So when it comes to defending the gospel, the way John starts is by clarifying who God is, what he's like, and his character. The word light there, phos, means pure, perfect, without blemish, it would be the same thing as saying God is holy. The verse goes on to say, to clarify, in him there is no darkness at all. He is perfectly holy in every way. So then John clarifies that we have fellowship with this holy God. Okay, so he goes on from here to clarify this fellowship we have, starting in verse 6. Now, I want you to notice this. This is a conversation about fellowship with God. This is not a conversation about being saved by Jesus. This is a conversation with those who have already believed. So as we talk about things like confession and sin and repentance, oftentimes we think that that only has to do with Jesus saves. In this passage, he is very clear. Confession, repentance, and faith is also a part of the Christian's life. You and I are transformed by Jesus, not just from the day that we're saved, but from every day there on where we continue to see sin, confess sin, repent sin, and trust in Jesus. So this is a Jesus transforms conversation, not simply a Jesus saves conversation. So 1 John 1, 6, here it is, our first if we claim. If we claim to have fellowship with him, that is the Lord, and yet walk in darkness, We lie, and we do not live out the truth. So if there's a claim that we have fellowship or communion or a close relationship with the God who is light, but yet we walk in a completely different manner, we walk in the darkness, the reality is is that's just a lie. 
It's wrong, and we do not live out the truth. So some are claiming this, and John says, this just doesn't work. The way it does work is found in verse 7. Verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he, that is the Lord, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So here's the call. The call is to walk in the light. I want you to notice something. This is surprising. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, my expectation would be is that he would say fellowship with him. Isn't that the conversation? Is that what he says? He doesn't. He says, we have fellowship with one another. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, not only do we have vertical fellowship with the Lord, but it pours out horizontally where we have fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So to have fellowship with him also means we have fellowship with one another. They go together. We can't pull those apart. So that's a big component. Another thing I want you to notice is the word walk. Walk. What pops in your head when you think of the word walk? Walking is not a state of being. Walking is not like an experience. Walking doesn't point to perfection, but rather walking is a step-by-step process that goes in a particular direction. Uh, There's intentionality. This concept of walking in the light or walking in the darkness is a Hebrew idiom or a Hebrew phrase that just means the way one lives. It points to an ongoing habitual process. Every step we take in this process of walking in the light is a step that we take in the forgiveness of Jesus. We are already saved. This is not a verse about getting saved. It's a verse about walking in the light as we are already saved. So the question is not, are we going to walk? The question is which direction? In the darkness or in the light? Now, for me, there's a natural question that pops up here. If God is light, which means he's perfectly pure, totally holy, and I am called to walk in the light as he is in the light, is John saying here that I need to live a perfect life? Does my moral purity need to match God's moral purity in order to be in fellowship with him and with you? Is that necessary according to this verse? Well, John teaches us exactly how that works out in the next verse. Verse 8 says this, our second if we claim. If we claim to be without sin, this is present tense, if we presently, right now claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There are some huge implications to this verse. What it's saying is that you as a Christian, me as a Christian, whether you're a pastor, a deacon, someone who just started walking with God, you and I still have sin in our lives. And to claim that we presently in this moment are without sin, we're simply deceived. We're self-deceived. So all of us presently have sin. Well, Pastor Mike, that's not very good news. You didn't see me today. You don't know if I sinned. Sometimes our view of sin is a little bit off. Sometimes we think sin is only the big bad things that we do externally. When the Bible talks about sin, it is pervasive in the way it describes it. Jesus 
in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says, be ye perfect, that must be King James, be ye perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. So your standard of perfection is God himself. So if at any moment you don't measure up with God himself, it's less than perfect, it's less than holy, it is called sin. We're called to glorify the Lord in everything we do, whether we eat or we drink. How'd you do eating your burrito today glorifying the Lord? We're called to do everything with a thankful heart. We're called to do everything in the name of Jesus. Did you brush your teeth in the name of Jesus today? Oh, you didn't? Romans 14.23 says that everything not done in faith is sin. Did you open our front door when you came in today in faith? Like there's this crazy active component in our life with our intentions and our motivations and our hearts and our emotions that God calls us to lean into to reflect him in our purity. All of us, all the time, are still struggling with sin. It's part of who we are. So we're already forgiven, but we are not yet without sin. So what do we do with all this sin? Verse nine talks about that. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So again, this conversation is about walking. Okay, it's about walking in the light. This is how we do it. We recognize that we still have sin. And then as a Christian, I confess that sin knowing that he is faithful and just, and he'll forgive me of that sin. This is not a fight for me to be saved with the Lord every day. Every day I don't wake up with a broken relationship with God seeking to be saved again. This is the reality that I stand in a committed relationship with the Lord and I need to get right with him sometimes. In the same way my wife and I get into arguments and we're struggling with intimacy or we're struggling with just enjoying one another, I can go to her and ask for forgiveness for the things I've said the things I've done, and I get right with her. That's the picture that we're given here. So what we learn is walking in the light is not perfection, but a continual process of confession, repentance, in faith, knowing that we are saved in Jesus. Karen Jobes says this, clearly John teaches that walking in the light requires ongoing cleansing from sin in order to maintain fellowship with God. Just like any person in your life, when you wrong someone, you get right with them. It's same with the Lord and your relationship with him. I would suggest that John summarizes something here in these verses that's discussed all throughout scripture. I was reading Psalm 51 today. It's all about this. James chapter four, 2 Timothy. All over scripture, you see this process that we continue to live a life of repentance and faith as a believer. Verse 10, it says, third, if we claim, if we claim that we have not sinned, this is past tense, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Why would he say that? Well, it says all throughout scripture that you and I are in sin. From the moment of birth till the moment of death, we live in sin. So to claim that we've never sinned is simply to look at the Lord and say, your word is false, I don't believe you, you are a liar. But instead of denying sin, what John's calling us to do is to confess our sin. We come to our third part, the gospel-centered life. What does it look like to walk in the light? I'm going to suggest through a graphic we're going to present over time is that we center our life around the cross. 
And everything about what we do is centered on that cross and on the beauty of the gospel. When I talk about Jesus transforms, this is a figure, a chart that I use a lot. There's a point in our life where we don't know Jesus, and then we come to know him. Everything changes. And then we start this process of growing to be more like him over time. But the question that John talks about here, the question that you have, the question that I have, is how do I go from here to here? How do I move up that line? How am I transformed from this person to this person to this person? How do I actually grow? So if Jesus transforms, that means something has to be continually and consistently changing. Here's the starting point. Here's the graphic we're going to work through. So we're eventually going to move through arrows all around. It starts with this. We start because of Jesus. We have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with others. So that's where it starts. And then step one is we recognize, and we just talked about this in verse eight, that we have an awareness and an identification of our sin. So to maintain that fellowship with God, to maintain that fellowship with you and I, we have to recognize that we still have sin in our life. There needs to be some awareness, some conviction that's brought into our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Both his word and his people, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring illumination and clarity into our life of where we still struggle with sin. I'd like to work through this concept with an iceberg. Here's our iceberg. So if you know much about icebergs, and I'm sure you do, uh, the top 10% usually sticks out of the water. And then there's 90% that hides under the water. So for us, that top 10%, that little bit, that kind of represents our outward holiness. Areas that we've cleaned up, the shiny part of who we are, where we've seen our sin, we've seen God cleanse us and change us, and we live out of God's grace, life in a pure way, outward holiness. Uh, but if we stop there, a guy named J.C. Ryle has a quote for us. J.C. Ryle says this, perhaps some reader thinks that an outwardly correct religion is sufficient, as though only the top part of the iceberg is all you need. If so, you are completely wrong. So it never ever stops with just the top part of the iceberg. If we ever become pleased with ourselves, with how holy we look outwardly, we've missed the whole thing. So let's go to the second part of the iceberg. This is an inward awareness of our sin. You and I both have areas of our life where we know we're still struggling. We say that one thing to that one person, we go, oh, I've been trying not to say that. I've been trying not to do that. I've been trying not to think that. I've been trying not to look at that. I've been trying to look at that more. Whatever it is, there's areas of your life where you have awareness of struggle. This is a part of who we are. There was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He lived hundreds of years ago. And as a very young man, he created some resolutions of how he determined to live his life. This is a really good one, and it speaks to this part of our iceberg. It says this, resolved to act in all respects, both in speaking and doing, as if nobody had ever been as sinful as I am. And when I encounter sin in others, I will feel as if I had committed the same sins or had the same weakness or failings as others. How does it impact us to know that we still have an awareness of sin in our lives? It should look something like this. It puts us on even ground. There's no one in my life or your life that we can look down on because you and I still have an awareness of all this sin still in our life. 
I love this thought that he will not look at anybody and assume that they're the sinful one. His resolution is that he always views himself as the one who is most sinful. Imagine how your interactions with your loved ones would change if you just assumed they're in the right and you're in the wrong. Imagine how you'd interact with neighbors and friends differently if you just assumed you're the one with the greatest spiritual need. That's what he resolves to do. So if we go back to our iceberg, and then we go to the next part of the iceberg, there's still sin in our lives that we're not yet aware of. So imagine that there was a line here where we have an awareness of this, but we don't have an awareness of this. That line is where warfare takes place. God is attempting and desiring to show you more and more of areas where you have sin. But you and I, in our flesh, have this tendency to push back. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to see our other failings. We don't want to see our other areas of sin, so we push back. So right here is a place where war takes place. This is the line where God's word has to kick in. God's spirit has to kick in. God's people need to speak into it to get us into a point where we become more and more aware of our sin. The Apostle Paul talks this way about sin in his life. And I want you to notice the second part of this verse is in the present tense. Paul, when he writes this in 1 Timothy, is near the end of his life. So he's been walking with Jesus for a long time. He knows Jesus really well, but he also knows himself really well. And he says this, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am right now, in this moment, the worst. So Paul's self-assessment is very similar to Jonathan Edwards' resolution. When he looked around at others, he didn't look around and say, wow, look how sinful that crew is. He was overwhelmed with his own state of sinfulness. The longer he lived, the more aware he became of his own sinfulness. So going back to the iceberg, he was willing to push down through that line. Let me give you one more resolution from Jonathan Edwards. So in this same area, he says this. This is another one of those resolutions. He says, resolved. Whenever I do any conspicuously evil act or outwardly evil act, he then traces it back till he comes to the original cause. So when I do something outwardly, something just flies out of my mouth or all of a sudden I burst out in anger. I don't just say, oh, I outwardly sinned. He says, I pause for a moment. Why did I say that? Why did I think that? Why did I do that? And he traces it back to the cause. This is another way of him saying, I'm not okay with my level of awareness of my sin. I want to go deeper and deeper into truly understanding where this sin lies at its root. Where is this sin coming from? Where I, why is it there? So he's willing to pursue that. This week, I, I was sitting on the couch, I had my iPad in my lap, and I think I was working on my sermon. And the television was on, my daughter Lexi was sitting on the other couch, and she was watching something that I wasn't overly interested in, and I'm working, and she pauses it, and then she, all I noticed is she then walked out of the room, went out of the house to our back porch, and started playing lacrosse on the back porch. And there's this thing where I like my children to turn the television off when they leave not just pause things and just leave the room. So instantly, I'm a little frustrated. I walk over to the glass door where I'm looking out on the back porch. I start rapping on the window. Hey, hey, you get in here and turn off the television. 
She walks in and in a very kind voice, she says, Dad, I put the remotes right beside you so you could watch whatever you wanted. And I go, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead and go play, thank you. She walks out. As soon as my daughter walks out, my wife walks in. And my wife looks at me and said, what kind of work day did you have? <laughs> she, she instantly knew that I was being a little rougher with my daughter than I should have been. There was something else going on deeper that I had to get to to realize why I responded to a very little thing in a very big way. So my wife slowed down to help me go through that line, to go a little deeper. What's going on with me that I would respond that way to my daughter? All of us have moments like that. And I pray that you have people in your life like my wife who slows down and says, what's going on? Let's go a little deeper with that. To go back to the end of this illustration, at the bottom, there's also a reality that there are sins in your life that you will never be aware of. The goal is to become aware of as much as possible because that's where transformation happens. If there's no awareness, there's no transformation. So that's where transformation happens. So you push and you push, but you'll never get all the way down to the bottom until we see Jesus face to face and then it's all washed away and it's all gone. So step two, going back to our circle, we have the cross and step one was to have awareness and identification of sin. The next step is to then have conviction of that sin and then to confess it in repentance and faith. So we go from awareness and identification to confession and repentance. That is a huge deal. Some of you might be thinking, well, Pastor Mike, obviously, if I see sin, I should confess it. The reality is, is most of us go out of our way to avoid these types of conversations with the Lord. We tend to do one of two other things. We'll go one direction, and we attempt to rationalize our sin or to justify our sin. We'll say things like, did you hear what they said to me? Of course I should have responded that way. I'm just really tired. You got to give me a break. You would have done the same thing. I rationalize, I justify, or I go the other direction and I just pretend and perform. Everyone does that. Everyone thinks that way. Everyone struggles with that. I didn't actually hurt anyone or I realized I did that and that wasn't okay. I'll just work harder next time. So we go into performance mode. That is not what John is calling us to. That's not what Jesus transforms is all about. That is Mike transforms, which doesn't work. Jesus transforms goes this direction. It goes to an identity and awareness of sin, and then it goes down to, I confess that sin and I talk to the Lord about it. So from chapter one, verse nine, we need to not avoid the conversation about sin, but rather we go into that conversation about sin. So let's go back to the bigger cross. So in this, we know that we are fully forgiven by Christ but we continue to go to him in confession and repentance, not to be saved, but to fight for intimacy. So let me give you some suggestions about confession and repentance. Number one, I would suggest that you and I confess and repent over particular sins. When you know you said something, when you know you did something, when you know you didn't do something that you should have done, when you know your attitude's off, when you're convicted of anything that you've thought, felt, or done, talk to the Lord about those particular things. Get right with the Lord about those things. But the reality is, is sin is not just that simple. There are certain things that we confess and can repent over, but they just go deeper than the outward acts. So I would also suggest that we confess and repent over overarching sins. 
What I mean by that is, I might confess some particular sins, but after that, I'll say things like this. Lord, I've struggled with selfishness all day. Can you help me with my selfishness? Because that comes out in so many ways. My pride or my self-righteousness. So we also talk about with the Lord overarching sins. We also confess and repent, not just with our head, but with our heart. What I mean by that is it should move you. When you're talking to the Lord about your sin, in that graph, there's a reason why the cross is in the middle. Because Jesus is the one who died in your place for that particular sin. So in that moment, it's not you being saved, but it's you realizing for the first time that Jesus died for that sin. When I did that thing, when I said that word, Jesus, you died for that sin. So there should be something that, should be something that moves in us for that. And finally, we confess and repent in faith, fighting for intimacy. We're not fighting for salvation. We walk in there knowing we're saved. Like when I get right with my, with my wife, I know that I'm married, but I'm fighting for intimacy, not salvation. Third step, as you keep moving around the cross, what happens here after I confess my sin and repent is I have this increased love for Christ and joy in my salvation. When you and I spend some time being convicted of sin, when we confess that sin and look at Jesus and say, Lord, I'm struggling with this, I did this, I sinned in this way, then there's some reality that as you look at him and he looks back at you, you realize that he took that sin upon himself. He looks at you and he acknowledges through the word, I love you so much, child, that I knew you were going to do that sin. And I took the weight and the punishment and the wrath of that sin and I put it right here and I died in your place for that. And then you look at the father and you recognize in that moment of confession that he willingly placed that anger, that wrath on his beloved son for your sake. And the Holy Spirit just works in us and through us to convict us and to prepare us for that moment. In that moment, you better believe your love for the Lord increases. You realize what he's done for you. The Father displays his love. The Son displays his love. The Holy Spirit displays his love. And 1 John teaches us, I love him because he has loved me so much. So this process continues to, to remind me of what Jesus did for me. It causes me to fall more in love with him and it increases my joy and my salvation because my salvation just got a little richer. It feels a little deeper. I realize how much he's really done for me so my salvation is sweeter. And then we finish this process by again, walking in fellowship with the Lord and one another. And then what happens? Right there, right here, right here. Then what happens? Again, again. You want this wheel to be churning and turning in your life all the time. When you wake up in the morning, boom. When you're in your car, boom. This is the Christian life. How does Jesus change and transform you? It's through this process over and over again. When we go back to that cross graph, this is a process of growth, but I want you to see where this fits in. So we take that cross, we boom, put it right there. Did that feel magical? I wanted that to feel like a magical moment. So boom, we put it right there, and kind of like a yo-yo that runs up a string, every time you go through that process of going around that cross, it moves you in this direction. 
Spiritual growth, transformation comes from a consistency of living a gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered life. Living this way does several things. One, it recognizes God's holiness. Two, it acknowledges our sin. It causes us to continually go to the cross, and it keeps our hearts and our minds gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered. I keep thinking about Jesus. I spend a lot of my time now on my knees, and by doing so, it produces in me and in you humility, thankfulness, joy, love for God. It reminds us that we are no better than anyone else. Not now, not ever. The ground at the foot of the cross is level for all who kneel there. This is the gospel-centered life. I have three questions for you to consider and to think through as you try to make this a centerpiece of who you are. Number one, are you ready to have honest conversations with God about your sin? Not to justify, not to rationalize, not to perform, not to pretend like it really didn't happen, but to talk to the Lord directly about your sin. Are you ready for that conversation? Maybe one way of helping yourself remind yourself for this conversation is putting that symbol somewhere. Put it on a sticky note, stick it somewhere. I have it in my Bible. By 1 John chapter 1, that symbol is right there in my Bible. It's in James chapter 4, it's in Psalm 51, it's all over my Bible to remind me to do this. Question number two, are you willing not only to read God's word, but to let God's word read you? What I mean by that is, are you going slow enough that not only are you reading the words on the page, but are the words on the page reading your heart, your mind, keeping you in check? Is there time for that word to convict you? Third question, are you willing to ask others to help you see your sin? That is no little ask. But if you find people in your life who are willing to have honest conversations about your sin, where you need to grow, hold on to those people. They are a treasure. You will experience more of God's love through those individuals than anyone else in your life. Your growth in Jesus, I believe, depends on how you answer some of these questions. My desire is that I want us to be Christ-centered, gospel-centered Christians in a gospel-centered church who take this gospel to each and every person in our community until this community is saturated with the beauty of this gospel. But it starts with you and with me. Are you ready? Are you willing to center your life around the gospel, to identify your sin, to be aware of it, to confess that sin to the Lord, to repent and to believe in faith, knowing you're saved in Jesus? Are you ready to experience an increased love for God and joy in your salvation, that we might walk in the light, enjoy fellowship with Him and one another? Let's pray that that would be true. Father, we come before you, and Jesus, with great thankfulness, we can center our lives around you. We never wander too far that we're not still saved by your grace. So as we see sin, as we're convicted by sin, we can walk into your presence and have honest conversations and fight for intimacy with you. Allow us to be gospel-centered people, focused on you, Jesus, that the cross would be the centerpiece of our life because it's all that really matters. Jesus, in dependency, we come to you. We thank you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.